Welcome to Thinking Ahead, the mental health tech podcast from IESO. I'm Tom Clarford. Today, we're talking about AI in mental health care. We'll look at the potential applications, the potential impact, and some of the potential ethical pitfalls of using artificial intelligence in such a high-stakes field. I'm really looking forward to this one. I hope you are too. Joining me today are Dr. Ronan Cummins, Director of AI Research at IESO, Dr. Michael Eubank, Senior Clinical Scientist at IESO, and Dr. Jennifer Gentile, IESO's SVP of US Research and Clinical Innovation. Welcome to you all. So, Ronan, people use AI to describe all sorts of systems. Would you mind explaining what we mean by AI? Yeah, so AI is quite a broad term, actually, um, and it actually harks back to around 1950s. And there are two subsets of AI. One is often called old-school AI or old-fashioned AI. And this type of AI is consisted of facts and rules that human programmers would put into systems. And that was very much a predominant paradigm up until about the 1980s or so. And um, for as an example, this old-fashioned AI would be in types of systems where if we wanted to, say identify the sentiment of a review, for example. A human programmer might enter in lots of words like great, excellent, wonderful to determine if a review was positive or negative. However, a new paradigm emerged in the 90s and um, in the 2000s called machine learning, which um, tackles the problem in a much different way. And this, this is the paradigm that we is now seeing a large-scale adoption in lots of areas, in including uh, mental health. Um, and in this type of paradigm, the human never puts into their own rules or facts uh, around how the problems should be solved. Rather, they give lots of data to uh, the machine learning algorithm, and they also present it with labels um, indicating, for example, what type of category the object might be. So in my example for a sentiment of a review you would just give the machine uh, particular reviews and tell them these were positive reviews or negative reviews, and the computer would then uh, learn to figure out what words tend to occur in positive reviews and what types of words tend to occur in negative reviews, and it would figure out and learn the task for itself. So that's um, in a broad brushstrokes what uh, AI is. Great, thanks. So... um really using the machine to actually explore the problem space for itself rather than giving it sort of rules to uh, follow. Yeah. Ronan, what sort of problems are AISO using AI to solve? Yeah, so um, it's very much early days uh, with uh, s- some of the work we're doing here on AISO, but some of the problems we're tackling are to do with predicting uh, diagnosis at an early stage. So often patients come to AISO and they fill in uh, a self-assessment questionnaire and getting the right diagnosis and treating the right condition early is very important. So um, that's one area that we're focusing on. Other areas that we're focusing on are automated quality control and understanding what happens in therapy and what the therapist does. Um, Given that most therapy in IESO is conducted keyboard to keyboard, so these are all uh, text text responses, um, we're using natural language processing to categorize uh, what the therapist is doing um, and what role each utterance um, plays in the therapy. Other areas of research that we're looking at is predicting response to treatment. So this is very much in line with uh, work that uh, I think Michael and Anna 
uh, have looked at uh, regarding determining what uh, demographic variables influence response to treatment, things like age, gender, and so forth. And also, we've recently we've started moving into delivering between session care, so automating homework activities, and starting to research into conversational agents. So there's still a therapist um, providing the actual um, diagnosis for the patient, then. Yes. So in in lots of these applications, uh, and given where we are in our, our AI journey, we would all we would be advocating human in the loop AI. So. Um, there would always be a human there to uh, check that uh, that prediction is appropriate or at least seems appropriate. So you mentioned conversational agents. What are those? Yeah, so conversational agents are what um, are commonly referred to in the media as chatbots. Um, but uh, chatbots are more to do with uh, an entertainment or a chit-chat type conversation while conversational agents in the context in which we're uh, researching them is more in the area of a goal-oriented conversation so um, the conversational agent and uh, a patient for example there would be a common goal uh, around getting the patient to learn something or to achieve something throughout therapy. So uh, that sounds very much like a um a piece of software delivering care. Uh, Jennifer, uh, we're not treating patients with with chatbots currently, right? I, I've seen a review from a patient who thought their therapist was a robot. That's that's not happening, is it? <laughs> no, that's not happening. We don't have only robot-delivered care. Uh, right now, we use technology to oversee quality of care and to help guide the therapist and really provide the therapist with the best information possible to provide that care so the patients can have better recovery rates, the patients can have shorter treatment durations so they can get back to their regular lives more quickly, and also make the patients less likely to drop out in care just because dropping out in care is a big deal. Ronan, do you think somebody would notice if they were talking to a robot? Given the current state of the art in conversational agents, um, yes, they're they're quite likely to notice. Also, it would be unethical to not tell somebody uh, if they were talking with an artificial agent or conversational agent. So, IESO would, if any part of the IESO care journey was automated, we would uh, ensure that we would tell patients that they were talking to a conversational agent so so i i would add that the fact that we have so much data on what happens in therapy sessions so what therapists say in therapy sessions gives us an advantage in kind of constructing what um an automated therapist might say if you like so the knowledge the knowledge that we have is from hundreds and thousands of hours of conversations actual conversations between therapists and patients and that ai is really the only practical way that we can kind of distill that information to 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 uh to make sense of it and get some useful insights out of it as well to add so i've been a therapist um, for about 20 years now and i will admit a good portion of what i do is very similar from patient to patient and honestly can be automated if you think about things like introducing certain topics, some in, in introducing certain psychoeducational topics or education about mental health things, 
it's the same. It doesn't change between person to person. And given the, the lack of uh, available therapists, I, I might, I, I don't know, I, even as a clinician, I'm not trying to talk myself out of a job, but I might argue that why can't we automate some portion of care so that I can be available to see more people? That, that's very much where AISO will be kind of focusing the early stages of the research around uh, things that are done in every session that are more structured. I'm not going to say completely un- completely structured, but more structured than other types of parts of therapy, which are very personalized and very tailored to the patient. Um, so they seem like parts that, of the journey that can be automated um, first so that the therapist can do the actual, the more, shall we say, interesting parts as well. So for me, that, from my perspective, I would ask why... Uh, does this not exist already? Is it not possible that people you could just give people something to read? Is that not effective? <laughs> I wish that worked. Wouldn't that be great if you just give send give people a textbook? Yeah. So you know, re- reading a book, you know, does uh, it works for some people, but there's uh, problems with engagement uh, for others. Like, there's a reason why people spend. Uh, hours and hours on their iPhones and um, computers. It's because the interfaces there and the conversational interfaces that uh, have developed over the last number of years, um, they are particularly engaging. And getting patients to engage um, with therapy is um, is a, a crucial part. We know that 50% of people um, who enter therapy disengage and 50% of those who do engage recover. So if anything we can do to increase engagement is is a good thing. And if that's delivering conversational interfaces, conversational agents uh, as, as parts of homework elements or conversational agents in parts of therapy, um, that'll be a good thing. I'd just like to come back to something that um, Jennifer just mentioned, which is that um, there were bits of the care that she delivers that are maybe the same between between patients. Um, presumably, though, there's there's bits of what you give to your patients, even within that sort of structured environment, that a robot wouldn't be able to. I'm thinking about empathy, about actual sort of that, that human support, which is so valuable. Um, Ronan, a, a robot couldn't do that, could it? In terms of empathy... Um... I guess it depends on how you define empathy. So empathy uh, is often defined as um, somebody uh, understanding somebody else's um, problems. And um, currently computers don't understand uh, humans' problems, don't understand um, lots about the environment in which uh, humans and other people live. But it may not be, um, it's not too far-fetched to believe that humans will see conversational agents as an extension of therapists and therapy. For example, um, lots of people talk to their Alexa devices in their homes and they say, please, and thank you, and um, they, they personify them. So um, there may be ways in which um, empathy can empathy-like um, utterances and can be delivered by a conversational agent. Do you think it would be detrimental to have a, a conversational agent that mimics a human too closely? Do you think that, um, going back to empathy, that we know that a, 
you know, a chatbot can't feel empathy. So if it, if it, the fact that it would pretend might be more of an insult, do you think? That- yeah. So there is there is this idea of the uncanny valley, um, mm. where exactly what the phenomenon that you're talking about, where it's just not quite right, and uh, it actually puts uh, people off. Um, and this is a is you know this is a very much a concern, and um, that's why you know this whole area. You know, we have to tread with care in this area and we also have to think about other ways of achieving the same thing. So it may not be that you, you want to, we want bots to express empathy in the same way as humans do, but they may be able to, to say appropriate things at the right time for um, what they are, i.e. artificial agents. Difference between sympathy and empathy, I was, I was going to say. Mm, yeah, that might be a good way to say it. And, and thinking when you have, so empathy can be important within the therapeutic relationship and also the alliance is important. Uh, the, the patient is not likely being going to be willing to disclose things or try new ways of interacting unless there's a, a trust bill. And there are studies that support the therapeutic alliance of chatbots uh, can be on par with the therapeutic alliance between a patient and a human, uh, which is Surprising, right? My grad school apparently training um, can be can be mimicked by computers. Uh. I think there's a couple of studies showing uh, that people will disclose more to chatbots or artificial agents um, than they would to a human. So it, again, it may depend on because there's lots of variables when you're talking to to another human. It's just like what they look like, how old they are, how experienced they are gender, race, everything like that, that that we have preconceptions around and they may influence what we feel we can, how we have to perform in front of this person. With the chatbot, you kind of strip away a lot of Well, that, that whole concept of solipsistic interjection. Yeah. Are you, you going to explain? <laughs> so w- with that concept, when we're interacting with somebody, we look at them and we have all these preconceived notions, right? Maybe they have a wedding ring on. Maybe they're guessing they're of a certain socioeconomic status. Maybe you're guessing a certain, I don't know, gender or sexual identity. But you can have all these assumptions about people. And the the patient can imagine that person can never understand, could never appreciate where I'm coming from. Or that person looks like my Uncle Bob, and I just don't want to interact with them. Whereas with a chatbot... Uh, a lot sits more within the user's head or within the patient's head, and they can help to progress more quickly without kind of that noise that can occur when there are differences between people. So um, do you think this will increase this online disinhibition effect? Well, we certainly know about the online disinhibition effect, the idea exactly as Michael was speaking about, about people disclosing more readily when they're in a more anonymous format. Uh, you know, one could argue that could be helpful. Some early studies have shown that. But I think the therapeutic interaction is a complex interaction. So disinhibition is part of it. But there are so many other pieces as well that are important in making this an interaction where people will stay in the interaction and then they'll get better um, as a result of the interaction. And and just looping back around to the empathy question, um, it's part of uh, AISO's kind of research agenda to find out what parts can be automated. And very much in in the early stages, we, we are looking at very much human-in-the-loop um, types of systems. So it may be that 
aspects of uh, empathy are very, very challenging to automate or aspects of sympathy, as Michael put it. Um, And that the human is in the loop to deliver those parts of the um, protocol such that the patient stays engaged. They know there's a human there. They feel that human connection. But other parts of the protocol and the therapy is delivered by some automated um, conversational agent. So I often look at it as um, different levels, very much like self-driving cars. You have level zero to level five, where level zero are the cars that we have um, uh, around now, we have zero automation. And then uh, level one, two, three have uh, increasing amounts of automation, where level five is completely self-driving. You can you can you know open the door, pop in, fall asleep, and the car will take you to your destination. Um, that's I don't know how many years in the future, but there there is lots of steps we can get to in between that will certainly. Um, increase capacity in our mental health care systems because that's one of the areas in which we're uh which we, we need to focus on increasing that capacity fascinating discussion guys so um just to sort of pick up on this idea of capacity is that really why someone might want treatment with uh, one of these autonomous systems as part of the as part of the treatment then so so that more people can get care I love that question, Tom. Thank you for asking that question. Like, should the should automation be the default? Should human be the default? I, I think there's a bit of choice here. So what a person prefers. And, and some studies do show that, for example, males tend to prefer telehealth visits over visits in an in-office setting. Uh, and there's also some, some examples like Michael mentioned where um, some people might choose chatbots. Uh, we're not, though, at the luxury where every person is able to have that choice. Do I want a chatbot or do I want a human? Because humans are far less available. There's a tremendous shortage of mental health care providers all around the world. Even in you know wealthy countries like the UK and like the US, most people who need care don't get that care. Uh, so you know, I'm, I'm, not sh- I'm not exactly sure how to answer that question other than uh, I think we should think about technology as an augment to care. And if it's demonstrated in, in trials to be shown as effective, that it should be an option presented, um, particularly when there aren't other options for providing care. Yeah, this is a re- really good uh, answer. In terms of um, the availability, so there, um, obviously a computer or a conversational agent would be available 24-7 when your therapist may not be. So there are times at which you know, there might be just more um, better, it, it might suit you in terms of your working life. Uh, it might suit you to get care at unsociable hours, and that might be it. Might be easier to access um, a, a conversational agent or chatbot uh, at that time. Well, and as a clinician, I have to pipe in on this one: the idea of waiting to discuss your problems only on Tuesdays from two o'clock to three o'clock. That just doesn't seem palatable, right? I want to talk with somebody when I'm struggling after I've had that fight or I've gotten fired from my job or something that's gone on in my life. And having that just-in-time intervention, you know, certainly has been shown to be helpful at the point where the person's having distress. 
you know, oftentimes it, it no longer seems relevant when you wait a week, but then you might not have learned better strategies to cope with that stress if you didn't have that intervention when you needed it rather than waiting a week. Obviously, there are certain, I guess I'll say extreme situations people might find themselves in, maybe where they're thinking of harming themselves or somebody somebody else, obviously, in maybe some of those situations you're talking about where maybe a piece of software can't quite grasp like the, the magnitude of human emotion how, how do we deal with that sort of situation sorry not trying to dominate the conversation as a clinician but this this has been my life uh as far as emergency situations you know a, a chatbot can provide guidance to call local 999 in the uk or 911 in the u.s um, but r- really for those more acute situations, um, the current guidance is for a human to help with that. So we can give information from a bot, but, but at this point, not a lot of assessment from a bot or treatment interventions from a bot. And, and just, just from an AI perspective, I do know of um, solutions and research um, whereby um, there are there are a number of watchful or monitoring um, systems whereby they might be monitoring your social media or uh, your online activity to try and identify if certain behaviours and certain changes in your behaviours might lead to um, increased risk. Um, and these are very much in the early days of development and kind of and data sets. There's um, but such such systems may be useful in identifying changes in behavior and then, as Jennifer said, um, funneling you to uh, human um, care or uh, crisis services. Is this one of the problems that people have with AI, though? You, you mentioned kind of, you could be like people's social media posts or Facebook posts, is that the monitoring of people's language by faceless you know corporations tends to worry people yeah i i i think i think a lot of people are worried about um you know their personal data um given you know a number of scandals there has been let's say cambridge analytica and so forth um uh and and the systems i was referring to they're very much as in research um mode whereby um some of these data sets are people have given their data um but yes, uh, people, I think, I think there is a concern, and uh, I, we are very wary of that. Um, it's, uh, and that's we we take obviously our you know responsibility with regard to data governance um, very very um, seriously. Um, but there is also, an, I think, an onus and a responsibility on us to, given the data that we have, to. Um, to research um, solutions that might um, increase the effectiveness of mental health care and increase the availability of it um, um, within the guidance of NHS ethics and NHS data governance. Um, I was just going to say, it sounds almost like you're saying there, Ronan, that you'd be doing harm by doing nothing, given the, given the position we're in. I think there's a, an opportunity and um, to um, change mental health care uh, for the better, and I think it would be a missed opportunity if we didn't do if we didn't do something with um, the uh, the the data that we have. So, um, how do we make sure we're using this data responsibly, Michael? So, one of the things we did when we looked, for instance, at the um, the language of a therapy session is that everything we look at is 
completely anonymized so we don't link it to any individual patient we have no information about that patient can't be linked to their case therefore can't be linked to any white any further held information about them um and in most cases we don't actually need to look at people's data this is the advantage of ai is that it, it gets run through a software gets run through a computer comes out the other end with numbers which tell us essentially what happened in the session without us knowing any specific details about individuals um again it's always very important that people are, are aware of what we do so you know we're clear on the website about that we we will use people we will use this data for research that's part of what we do i.e so to try and improve treatment to make treatment more effective people are free to opt out of that if if they so wish do many people opt out michael a few people do it, it it's very rare I, th- I think most people accept that there's a general understanding when you get treatment in the nhs that you that the data that the nhs collects is is useful it's useful for improving the treatment that's delivered it's it's useful for future diagnosis so it, it it's almost a it's kind of an altruistic act to help improve future treatment might not directly benefit you at the time but it will hopefully benefit those uh, in the future yeah so kind of people willing to put their their experience towards um developing cures i suppose cure and air quotes cures for some of the more common mental health conditions yeah and and just yeah. to you know further that point that um the, the mental health care we we we're, we're very much on a role to try on a, go, a mission to try and put mental health equate mental health care with physical health care and your therapy is is part of your medical record and so it would seem strange if you um, had a GP visit and it didn't have um, your history of previous GP visits and the interventions and uh, medications that were prescribed. Um, and it's also to continue to care and being able to actually personalize your treatment journey. So the same would be uh, the same would be true of um, your your psychotherapy that. Um, you know, it would be useful um, in the in aggregate to develop new therapies, and useful for yourself further down the line if you ever need to, if you ever need to recap on your therapy, or if um, another therapist or clinician um, wanted to see what how you were treated. Are there any problems in sort of maybe that we know of, or we can sort of foresee in terms of people receiving part of their care from uh, an AI system? Yeah, so um, interestingly, we collaborated on a piece of research um, with a student from the University of Cambridge on the perceptions of chatbots uh, for therapy. And this was a piece of research that performed a Wizard of Oz type experiment where um, there was a... What's that? (laughs) Yeah, so where there was a real therapist and... um, a group of participants were told that they were talking to a real therapist. And then uh, another group of participants were told they were talking to a chatbot. However, they weren't talking to a chatbot. They were talking to a real person. And uh, the therapy was meant to be very similar in terms that the human would try and deliver uh, the, the 
the session in a very similar way. And between the two groups, sorry. Between the two groups. And okay. then we would uh, ask about their perceptions of the therapy. And one some of the outcomes were that the participants in the group that thought they were talking to a chatbot, uh, they felt that it was a little bit wooden. And um, they also felt that, um, I think, ease of sharing was actually, um, it was, sorry, more difficult to share. So this was actually slightly uh, contradict maybe some of the um, earlier uh, thoughts around uh, the online dis- or the dis- disinhibition effect. So maybe that in some senses they think that the chatbot doesn't care in that sense what they share. Because I guess that brings us to another issue of, what, of why don't people people feel comfortable with fully automated interventions? So you mentioned kind of self-driving cars. And for example, why people don't feel comfortable with a self-flying plane, for example. They always feel more comfortable if there's two people at the front because they figure that those two people don't want to crash the plane. And it's like if you figure with a therapist that they want to get you better, they're motivated to get you better. Is it... It, would AI ever care about about that? Yeah, and, and I also think that people may hold um, machines to so, somewhat different um, different standards than humans, um, mm. be, just because of their perceptions of what a computer is and what it should do and should be able to do. And so, yes, these these are kind of challenges, and you know, I don't, I don't at the area we don't have answers to some of these at the moment. So even though a human may make even a human doctor may make more mistakes than an AI doctor. It's somehow not not as bad. Yeah, and I, I think you're t- you're touching on kind of aspects of explainability and interpretability. What are those, please? Interpretability in terms of uh, being able to understand why uh, um, a, de- a decision engine. Has made the decision it has made. So we can we can talk to a human and we can say why, why did you do this and uh, what was the rationale behind that. It's much harder um, to do that uh, um, when we are when we're talking about these machine learning um, algorithms. So uh, they're much harder to interpret, especially these deep learning models that um, have uh, you know millions and billions of parameters um, and uh, that leads to this idea of them being a black box where you know you you, you feed it some inputs um, and then it gives you a prediction but yeah if that prediction is wrong you you have no way of um, kind of asking it why it was wrong which but in theoretically it should be more it should be a more rational decision that an AI makes although humans would like to think that they're they're rational they're often already swayed by their emotional response and then I think, certain evidence to say they'll come up with their rational explanation after their emotional response if you like yeah i was just going to ask about the sort of the current thinking in in uh, neuroscience this idea that people sort of come up with a decision and explain it after the fact rather than are actually making making decisions based on the rationales they think they are well your emotional responses are certainly very certainly quicker and they're faster than your your cognitive your cognition if you like um I suppose the key here is, does that affect therapists? How much therapists swayed by their own emotion 
emotional responses and biases in their when in their treatment and what can we learn from that and what can we not replicate i guess if we were creating ai well and therapists have bad days computers don't have bad days therapists are inconsistent they <laughs> forget they don't they're not able to take all the collective knowledge of thousands of patients yeah they get tired and yeah tired and lack of motivation or everything that humans experience and we know yeah. that therapists drift as a as a well-known phenomena of you get kind of properly trained in your training as to what good evidence-based care looks like and you tend to drift further and further away as you develop your practice over time and and therapists uh, particularly in the US are not really monitored as to how they're delivering their care uh, so the idea of getting that same quality product every time it, it seems somewhat appealing to me I'm, I'm, I agree that I like I like the human component and that is important uh, but standardization is also important to me. We we shouldn't forget also that the or discount the hypothesis that humans are better in certain areas and that we may not be able to uh, surpass the, the, that performance um, anytime soon. And there's this area of intelligence augmentation, whereby the idea that a machine and a human will be better than uh, either alone. And so, you know, there's, there's the kind of this idea, there's chess competitions where uh, a human and a, a, you know, a chess engine uh, have, uh, compete against, uh, you know, another chess engine and are able to beat it. Um, and so, you know, it's this, this idea of combining the strengths of both um, is important. I think I read something about, um, I, th- I think you, you and I mentioned uh, some sort of cancer detection uh, system mm. earlier on I, I think i read something about um the, the strongest results with those sorts of systems being from um humans and and these machine learning algorithms sort of working in concert so um where do we think this field's going to go in in the future maybe, maybe the, i i always get um I, I i ask this question quite a lot and michael and anna told me off I think last week because I didn't give them enough of a time frame. I said, "Oh, what's going to happen in five years?" And they said, "Well, come on, not not that much." So, <laughs> in, in ten or twenty years, where where do we see the the field of AI and mental health care going? Um, Ronan, Ronan I'll, I'll get you to start us off. Yeah, so I, I, I certainly think um, therapists will have a lot more tools available to them. Um, in terms of helping them to diagnose um, and helping them to treat patients, I, I, I don't think there'll be an automated therapist within that time frame. But um, I think there there will be parts of therapy that are automated. Parts of that therapy will be uh, uh, talking therapy. I.e., you know, conversational agents will have a role to play. They'll be uh, automating some parts of therapy. Certainly, homework acti- out of session activities, um, and there may be certain uh, weekly or fortnightly check-ins with a therapist. Um, I wouldn't be able to put a figure or an estimate onto how much time a therapist is going to spend with a patient in 10, 20 years, but I I, I think they'll certainly be still in the loop. Um, Given the difficulties and the complexities with um, developing fully automated um, goal-oriented conversations, um, yes, that will certainly still have humans in the loop. So you think self-driving cars before automated therapists then, Ronan? Yes, I, I do. I, I, I think um, 
uh, automating such a complex uh, conversation is uh, very, very difficult in, in, in terms of a completely um, off-the-rails conversation, i.e. where you know, a conversation will have to be able to answer, um, uh, interject, bring the conversation around again. I think that's a much more complex problem than self-driving cars. Not to say that I'm not kind of, you know, dis- <laughs> di- dissing the area of self-driving cars. I understand that. Elon Musk needs to pull his finger out. But um, so there is something, you know, quite difficult and quite linked to kind of human intelligence um, in the problem of uh, natural, in problem of uh, natural language understanding and natural language generation. I, th- I think we'll have also moved on to an era where there'll be a lot more support for people, ongoing support for people. So when people have finished therapy, they will have some kind of aid or tool or assistant that is there to help them, to remind them or to refresh them of things or to, to keep practicing the things they've learned. So it won't be the case if you've been through therapy, then you're on your own. It's kind of you'll have this this support, which is probably tailored to your particular needs in the future. Yeah, that that sounds really exciting. Gen- Jennifer, what do you think? 20 years time. 20 years time. Well, in 20 years time, I hope we can do a variety of ways in which to think about mental health as truly health and not just mental illness. So thinking about very, very early detection, preventative things, uh, we know for many different mi- kinds of mental health conditions, there are uh, prodrome or, or pre-diagnostic things that are happening. Maybe people have a increase in uh, caffeine usage, increase in um, changing their behavior to more, um, there's interesting studies about more fatty foods and more sugary foods people tend to eat as their mood goes down. Uh, and or with uh, bipolar depression, for example, tending to have more rapid speech or increase your spending habits. So if we can identify those early predictors of when an, uh, a mental health episode is or a mental illness episode is coming on, I think that can be helpful because we know the earlier we can detect and treat, the better off the person is. I also hope that uh, the therapist has more information when they're treating a person. So right now, the information the therapist has is usually just in the form of a conversation and at best standardized assessments. Right, but that doesn't take into account their GPS locations. Are they spending, you know, every night in a um, in a bar in there, and you're working with them for alcohol problems? It doesn't pay attention to their heart rate variability. Doesn't pay attention to exercise, eating habits. All kind of thinking about things as a whole person centered approach. That there are a variety of inputs to better understand how the person is, not just that one hour a week to understand how they are doing. Uh, and then I guess finally I would say I hope that there will be a variety of ways people can receive mental health care, and whether it be through technology, whether it be through a traditional outpatient therapy relationship to allow more choice for, for people so that it meets them where they're at. You know, right now we are serving such a small percentage of the people. And we have guesses about some of those barriers to treatment, but one of those barriers could be the traditional way of care delivery just is not interesting or palatable for some folks. So how do we figure about meeting people where they're at in their mental health care? Uh, and, I, and I guess, let me add one more finally. So all that should result in greater recovery rates is my hope. Um, it's interesting you mention um, 
GPS and other other sort of, uh, I guess we'd call them biomarkers. I know um, Anna, who regular listeners will remember from a couple of our other shows, has got a, a trial going on with using biomarkers. Um, we'll have to get her on to a future show to talk about that study and um, maybe f- find out if we can get some of her results from her. Thanks to all our guests for coming and sharing their thoughts. Next time, we'll be looking at using AI to predict what sort of treatment might be best for someone and how they might respond to that treatment. It's going to be fascinating, so I hope you'll join us. Make sure to follow Thinking Ahead wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. I've been Tom Clalford, and this has been Thinking Ahead. Thinking Ahead.